Okay, let's pray one more time. Father God, we just thank you for the word of God and the story of our Savior and just the details and the way you want us to understand it. We just pray that you would uh, give us an appreciation for his power and his compassion and his saving grace. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, there are only two miracles in the ministry of Jesus that occur in all four Gospels. Did you know that? It's only two. Can you guess which ones they are? Well, one should be easy. The resurrection, right? That, that's in all four Gospels, right? Because that's the key. The resurrection of, from the dead. The resurrection of Christ is the basis of everything we believe about the divinity of Christ and the sufficiency of his death for our salvation. That's critical. And it was, uh, if Jesus... the Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus is not raised bodily from the dead, for real, he said, we are of all men most to be pitied. We're pretty stupid to follow this whole thing, if that's not true. We're wasting our time. The whole Christian thing is just a beautiful dream and the world will be a mess forever. That's basically the reality if he's not raised from the dead. But, but he did rise from the dead. That's what Paul says there. So that miracle is recorded not only in the four Gospels, but it's remembered over and over again throughout the epistles. Those are the letters of the apostles that appear throughout the New Testament. And um, and in the book of Acts, the resurrection of Christ is the common thread of every sermon preached and every message throughout the entire book of Acts. It's all about the resurrection. That's the centerpiece of the apostolic witness and their message. So that's one. What's the other miracle that appears in all four Gospels? I'm going to tell you, Freddie. You don't have to give me. It's the one we're looking at this morning, obviously. The feeding, the feeding of the multitude, right? Something about this miracle uh, requires it, or the biblical authors, um, all the authoritative authors of Jesus' life, wanted to include it. For one thing, an awful lot of people saw it. I mean, this is a very public miracle. It became the talk of tens of thousands of people. I mean, once those thousands and thousands of people that saw it got home, you know, that, they're going to tell that story. So everybody knew about this. Plus, it's plainly miraculous. There's just not any way to kind of escape this one, right? I mean, Bishop Ryle says that a trickster, quote, would never attempt such a mighty work as that which is here recorded, he would know well that he could not persuade 10,000 men, women, and children that they were full when they were hungry. I mean, how are you going to fake that? You're really full. You're really full. No, it's not going to. He would be exposed as a cheat and an imposter on the spot. And of course, he's right about that. So the, the miracle of the, the loaves and the fishes, at his, at his, as it has been called, was spoken of very widely at the time, and it really captured the imagination of uh, the early church because Christian iconography, you know, uh, pictures that Christians left around in the very early years of Christianity were loaves and fish are a very common theme in a lot of that. So it's a, it's a really wonderful story on many levels, and I think it contains some practical advice for us as well. So this amazing event begins in Matthew 14, 13, And it comes directly off the report in verse 12 where the disciples of John the Baptist have come to Jesus to tell him that John has lost his head. And and they mean that quite literally. So if you remember the last 
story we looked at, that's where um, Herod Antipas had him beheaded at the behest of um, his stepdaughter. So Jesus decides there it's, t- it's, it's time for a break, really, to get away from the crowds, to rest, to pray, to prepare for what lies ahead. Opposition is increasing. It's now turning deadly. And I'd also like to point out here that uh, you can't live you can't live an effective life without some downtime. You can't be a spiritual giant if you don't have some rest. And he's actually going to do that. He's going to pull his disciples back a little bit from what they've been doing, which is working almost unbelievably hard, and they're going to go take a break. They're going to withdraw. So don't think that you're like invincible um, in your life because you're, you're not. You need, you need a rest. Um, I don't know. I'm pretty holy. I'm pretty tough. I can make it. No, you're probably fooling yourself just a little bit. And I can relate because I'd rather tough it out too, but the son of God who had no sin took breaks. So you probably need a break too. I mean, he's the one, the word made flesh and he wanted downtime. You have to make room for that in your life. That's a little side thing there. And I preacheth to myself on this a little bit. Okay, back to our story. So the death of John the Baptist marked this final shift where all the attention now would be focused on Jesus. John himself, when uh, Jesus arrived at the Jordan River, said, I must decrease and he must increase. Well, now John has decreased off the planet. So Jesus is going to be increasing dramatically. So, and, and his disciples, many of John's disciples had gone ahead and followed Jesus. He pointed them to that. But some of those that stayed with him as he kept preaching, now they're all going in the Jesus direction. So that's expanding his group as well. So Jesus chooses at this particular time and for a brief time to withdraw from crowded and constantly busy shores on western, uh, the west of the Sea of Galilee, the western shores of Galilee. And Mark says Jesus and the disciples were so busy they didn't have time to eat. So they had to like catch food on the fly because they couldn't sit down at a meal. There were people always after him and pressing on him. So Jesus and his small band of disciples get into a boat and they, they head north to a more sparsely populated area. Um, verse 12 there. And then the it turns out that the time off that they're hoping for is rather short-lived. So here's verse 13. When Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded, secluded place. A secluded place. That sounds so good. By himself. And when the people heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. So Jesus is crossing the lake. It's a big lake. It's the Sea of Galilee, they call it, because it's so big. Uh, and the crowd follows along the shore because they can kind of tell which direction the boat's going. So they, he's going up in the north back there. So we're going to go around and work our way around to meet, or meet him over there. These are very needy people, sick, um, lame, uh, lost, uh, hoping to see him. And it isn't so much that they believe in him as the savior king, as we're going to find out, that they really need We know from the very full account in John 6, which we're going to go to in a little bit, most of them don't have anything like that kind of faith. They don't, they're not trusting in Christ as their their Lord and Savior. They do have hopes, though, and they do have needs, and they want him to fix their needs. Very earthly, uh, practical thinking, and what they believe is that Jesus can help them. That's what they believe about him. He can do wonders, and wherever he gets these powers, I want them applied to me. So they're seeking him out. 
They're, and they're drawn to him personally, obviously. He's a wonderful teacher. Um, even though they don't always understand what he's saying, he's, he's brilliant to them, and he's full of compassion, and they, they pick up on that as well. So um, now in my New American Standard Bible, it says in verse 14, when he went ashore, most of your Bibles translate that that way. That could be. That could be a right translation because, uh, but the boat, the boat probably got there long before the crowd could make their way up around the Sea of Galilee. That would take a long time for them to do that. So the word translated as shore doesn't even have the word shore. This, the Greek word, it's just, it's just the word for out. So it could mean out of the boat, or it could mean coming out from the secluded place where he took his disciples. In other words, they may have had a short time there while the crowd was working their way around the sea. But you can kind of picture Jesus with his disciples maybe walking, it's a very hilly area, kind of walking over the prominence of a hill and down below they see this massive crowd of people coming along the shore to meet them. So it could be out of the boat or it could be out of where his secluded place was. Either way is fine. My guess is it's more out of the lonely spot, the secluded place. Which was suddenly looking like um, Best Buy on Black Friday. You know, it was like not secluded anymore. It was, it was a crowd, big crowds coming. So whether, either way, um, the, the, the key thing is when he sees the crowd, whether out of the boat or out of his place, how does he feel? How does Jesus feel when he sees them coming? That's the question you want to kind of think about. Was it, oh, rats, another giant multitude. Oh, I can't believe they're following me. Good heavens, these people followed me here. Can't they leave me alone for five minutes? Look at verse 14. He saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. So when he's seeing this giant multitude, which he knows is going to be more unending work, he feels compassion. He's not upset with them. He's not upset with the situation. The Greek idiom actually used here is very close to our English expression, um, his heart went out to them. It's like that. Uh, he just felt compassion. That's who he was. So he wasn't angry, he wasn't frustrated. Um, you know, it, when he served people, it was never grudging or half-hearted like ours sometimes is, you know. He didn't roll his eyes about people. Um, he felt this incredible love and that sent him right back into action on behalf of people ministering one at a time to each of these afflicted people as they came to him. So, brothers and sisters, uh, when you turn to Christ with your problems, that's the heart he has toward you. When he sees you with a need, he feels compassion. That's the heart of Christ. And remember, the Bible says that in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form. So whatever God is, it was in him. So when you pray to God, he has compassion for you. That's what he's like. Doesn't get tired. Jesus said to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? So when you see the heart of Jesus in the Gospels, you've seen the heart of God. I mean, he is God, the Son, but you're seeing God's heart towards you. So if you get nothing else out of today, remember that. God is a compassionate God, always. So when you're downcast or grieving or searching for answers or suffering, what you see here is the same attitude God has towards you when you seek him. Moved with compassion. So never forget that. And that means as his redeemed children, our hearts should follow after his in 
compassion towards other people. It's not always easy for us to maintain because we still battle what the Bible calls the old man. I just call it my wicked self. But that part of us that loves ourselves over other people, that does rise in us sometimes, but it didn't happen with Jesus. But we need to be like him. We need to cultivate a heart that's like him, truly compassionate. Any true believer in Jesus is gonna be compassionate, have compassionate times at least. <laughs> Because we're his now and we seek to follow him and walk in his steps. And I think for many of us, it's, it's really hard to be compassionate all the time, especially when it's inconvenient, especially when you're on vacation. <laughs> but he's on vacation and it doesn't change anything with him. He's just as compassionate as always. So now what follows here in verse 15 uh, is the actual occurrence of this very astounding and public miracle. And as we look at it, think about it in the context we've been discussing, his compassion, even when it's inconvenient, even when it's an interruption, even when it impacts his plans, which was to have some days of rest there. So he spends a full day with the multitude, and as the sun begins to set, the disciples start to worry. So Jesus is healing people, and the other gospels say he's teaching as well. And he was likely addressing some important topic or ministering to some person in pain or affliction. And the disciples are kind of over on the side discussing the lateness of the hour. He's working, doing his thing, and they're thinking, yeah, it's getting kind of late. Look at all these people here. Huh? Um, there's really nothing around. There's no restaurants around here, and really, there's not much uh, civilization around here. So they're starting to think about the logistical problems sort of inherent in the situation. And I'm sure that was a very legitimate concern on their part, but the way this plays out, I don't think it's reading in to have it in your mind that their concern might be a little bit more mixed motive-wise. Like, you know, we just got here for a vacation, and look, he spent all day with these people, and uh, let's kind of send them on so they can get some food and we can rest a little more. I think that's kind of what's going on. So it is getting late, and they're not near a city, so food's not readily available for all these thousands of people. Um, so they're saying the multitude should maybe head back now and uh, you know, see if they can find some food. So in verse 15, they actually approach Jesus while he's doing his thing, and they say, this place is desolate, and the hour is already late, so send the crowds away that they may go into villages and buy food for themselves. That's, that's very logical. You know, hey, it's, maybe it's time just to send the crowds away. Stop what we're doing. And if that solution fits with our vacation plans, so much the better, right? You know, it's like, that's good too. So Jesus stuns them in verse 16. He says, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Wow, where did that come from? All we're doing is suggesting a very practical solution to a problem we see coming. Why does he reject our send away plan and burden us with this absolutely impossible burden to bear? I mean, uh, how can they do that? I mean, they, can, they, can they just make food? Well, he can. First of all, one reason why he would do that, put that on them, is because he's not done yet. He's not finished with what he's doing. And Jesus did not heal a crowd like this. You're all healed. He doesn't do it like that. It's one person at a time. He's ministering to people individually. So there's lines. And he's, he's not done. And maybe he had more things he wanted to say. But anyway, 
he knew what time it was. Jesus can tell the sun is heading down. He, he knows what hour it is. He didn't need to be told the sun was going down. So I think there's a second reason here. He's discerned in the disciples this sort of mixed motive for bringing this ministry time to an end. And he needed to kind of bring that forward. So I think that's why he's saying this to them. They really, they really just wanted the day to be over. In fact, in John chapter six, verse six, it says that Jesus put the situation in the disciples' hands, it specifically says to test them. So one thing we're testing here is the, is the disciples, because he knew exactly what he was gonna do about the problem, but he didn't tell them that, he's just laying it in their hands for right now. So John's gospel tells us that Philip looked at the whole thing as kind of a financial thing. You know, we checked the purse, they had a, they had a common purse and um, uh, they would, pay for their travel expenses and food along the way as they traveled preaching and stuff like that. And he, he's looking in there and he, we got 200 denarii in here. That will not feed a tenth of these people. We don't have hardly any money. Then Andrew says, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are those among so many people? So yeah, there's not much there. So they're working the problem. They're coming up empty. Well, Lord, we've got like, you know, 30 bucks and we've got like uh, five loaves of bread and a couple of fish. Kind of sending it back to him like, can you see why we're saying what we're saying? We have a problem of insufficient resources. And it appears Jesus wanted to see if they would recognize maybe another possibility, uh, a demonstration of divine power. I mean, they never actually approach him and say, do you think you could do something about this? Uh, they don't. They don't do that. And, and just dismissing the crowd, at least to the Lord, is just too quick and too easy. So there's something of a, there's sort of a pattern with the disciples in the Gospels. They, they sometimes are looking for sort of send away problems kind of a thing, you know? They, remember they wouldn't let children near Jesus? Don't bother them, you know, let's send them away. The Syrophoenician woman who's following Jesus yelling, help me, help me, they say, send her away. Why don't you send her away? They wanted to stop people from doing good in Jesus' name, remember, that were not part of their group, and they said, oh, you want me to call some fire from heaven down on those people? And Jesus is like, what? <laughs> no, let's not do that. Uh, there's a tendency to be dismissive. There's a tendency to be dismissive of needs without exploring all the options. Uh, like, we've done enough, we're done. Uh, and they were too quick to look at everything from a human perspective as well, not leaving room for God to work. Notice it doesn't say they prayed about it or anything like that. So they needed to learn to broaden their perspective if they were gonna be successful and be, being world-changing apostles after Jesus is gone and they gotta do all this themselves. Many times in their future, things are not going to add up properly, but they're still going to have to apply themselves and keep going. So it's one of those sort of lessons for them, I think. So Jesus decides to open their minds by this amazing display of divine power, verse 18. So he says about the fish and the loaves, bring them here to me. Verse 19, ordering the people to sit down on the grass. It's so funny, I can't read these passages without the Easter drama just going through my head, all, all that, because uh, so much of what we're reading here today is like word for word. Um, I hear Brooke um, narrating this scene. Should have him come up here. <clears throat> Ordering the people to sit down on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food, and breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. 
they picked up what was left over of broken pieces, 12 full baskets. There were about 5,000 men who ate besides women and children. So we don't know what the proportions were, but it's at least 5,000 people. And if there's women and children there too, it could be 10,000, 15,000. It's a big crowd of people. Well, the disciples didn't figure on that as a solution, what just happened before their very eyes, but maybe they should have. You know, the lesson here is probably, let's give God some room to work in situations where we're sort of, we can't come up with a solution. These men did not ask Jesus if there was something he could do. They just told him it was time to break things up. That, that was how they came to him. So they will learn that sometimes he does provide and can provide beyond our expectations. Not only did Jesus feed everybody, there's an abundance left over. So I think God wants us, when we're thinking about things like this, just problems or ministry issues like that, to include at least the possibility of his divine intervention in taking care of things. Um, to give him some room, to make sure we're not doing less because we're too tired or we're not in the mood to continue or we just can't see a way forward in something. It's clear from the same passage that Jesus is, he's all for getting rest. He, he pulled them back to get some rest. He left those crowds to take the guys, get some R&R as they say, but not at the expense of needs that God has brought in his path. So these people show up, okay, his heart goes out to them. So he planned a vacation. God planned a needy multitude. So Jesus chooses the needy multitude. He served the multitude. And not because it was his duty, but it tells us why. Because his heart went out to them. He was full of compassion. That is a sinless man. We're not always like that. But we should be. So look at this situation. Time was short for ministry. Needs were going unmet. God made more time for ministry by providing the meal. So don't forget him in our endeavors. He can make up for things we think can't happen sometimes. So include him. Now let's look at these events from the standpoint of Jesus' relationship with the crowd that followed him. So we sort of talked about the disciples, but now I want to go to John chapter 6. And we're gonna kind of jog through John 6, okay? So just sort of hang in there with me. This miracle is a testing miracle, a, a sifting miracle. It's a, it's a miracle that exposes not only the disciples and their particular need to grow maybe, but the multitudes, it exposes their real reason for following him. And in John, we learn about them as well as the disciples. The miracle of the loaves and the fishes reveals whether or not the crowd itself has an earthly, flesh-centered, if you will, motive for pursuing Jesus or if their hunger is really for the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God and living for God. If they were worldly in their hearts and motives, then Jesus would bring that out and let them see it. And then they could hopefully repent and embrace him or walk away. So we're gonna start in verse 11 of John chapter six. It says, Jesus then took the loaves and having given thanks, just like it describes in Matthew, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also the fish as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from five barley loaves 
which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. And they mean a lot by this. So Jesus, verse 15, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. So what is the crowd thinking? This is it. He's the man. He's the prophet. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses predicted there would come, 1,500 years before this, there would come a prophet like him, like Moses, somebody that significant. And they're saying, this is the guy, manna from heaven. Mr. Wonder Bread for president. That's sort of where they are. So this draft Jesus sentiment on their part was very powerful and Jesus could tell where this was going. And he could have led a revolution if he wanted to. Of course, that's not why he came, is it? To lead a revolution. So what does he do? He leaves. He leaves. Verse 16, now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea and after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. So his disciples get in a boat. He pulled away by himself. They're crossing the Sea of Galilee to go back home to Capernaum, which is their headquarters. And this is the story of Jesus walking on the sea. And so he comes to them on the water on verse 19. He gets into the boat. We're going to skip that part for the most part. Verse 22, the next day, the crowd stood on the other side of the sea, that stood on the other side of the sea, saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. So they, they saw what happened. The, the 12 got in the boat and left, and Jesus wasn't with them. Verse 23, there came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So this is a key part of that very large crowd. This isn't everybody, but it's enough to get into some boats and follow after him. So they're seeking him out. Now, pay attention to the conversation. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, remember he, he walked out to the boat and went with the, the apostles, right? So that's how he got there. But he's not, he doesn't say that's what happened. Well, I was walking on the sea. You guys missed that. It was a great miracle. It's another great miracle of mine. He doesn't say that. He, he, he goes to their motive, he, he goes to what he knows is in their hearts. That he doesn't even answer that question. Truly, Truly, whenever he says that, it's serious. I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, the Father, God, has set his seal. So you know what? It matters. It matters how you come to Jesus and why you come to Jesus. They wanted wonder bread. 
they, that someone to feed them like Moses brought manna in the wilderness. Life would be so much easier. He did not come to fill bellies. He came to save souls. He came to bring salvation from sin. He came to bring eternal life. He fed them bread so there would be more time to minister to their souls. That's why he did it. So work, he says, for the food which endures to eternal life. And it almost seems like they understand what he's saying in verse 28. They said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So it takes it right back to faith. Faith is everything. Faith, faith is the thing that links us to Christ and brings us salvation. But it is faith in him as he is, not whatever convenient creature we've created in our minds that he should be for us. It's faith in the real, real Jesus. So he takes them to the only issue, which is faith, faith in him, God wants that one thing out of them, ultimately, for men to set their trust on the one he has sent. But watch this, it's just just tragic. They immediately, in their minds, when they're saying, what can we do to work the works of God, they immediately run back to the earth. He's offering them heaven and they run back to earth. They turn their attention to this world, to their bellies, And they have scripture to back them up too. Verse 30, they said to him, this is really ridiculous. What then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Just give us food. That's what we're interested in. God gave us bread once, real bread, you know, real bread. You do it now for us. Free bread like Moses gave, like manna in the wilderness. They're asking for signs. They just saw him do that. They just saw signs. He just spent all day healing people. They had signs out their ears. I mean, it was, they were full of signs. All day. Verse 32, truly I say to you, it's not Moses who's given you the bread out of heaven. It is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. It sounded so good to them when he said that. They said, Lord, always give us this bread. Let it come every day. Do that, do what you did back there up in the northern part of Galilee. Do that every day. We want that bread. They're not getting it. So he's as straight as he can be with them. Verse 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me yet do not believe All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. 
For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. So he lifts their vision to eternity, to the real issues, what lasts, salvation, wholeness, reconciliation with God, fullness, fullness from the living word of God, Christ, resurrection. And you know what? They're really disappointed with that answer. What do you mean? You came down out of heaven? Verse 41. They they were grumbling, grumbling about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down out of heaven? Sounds like just the stuff they were saying in Nazareth, right? They just don't see it at all, even though they watched him do these incredible things. So they grumble. They can't stomach the idea that Jesus is himself the bread of life. They've witnessed all these miracles, the loaves and the fish and the healings and obviously he's more than a carpenter. Hey, that would be a title of a good book. I should, we should write a book called that. He has no choice now but, but to just keep going at him. Go for the throat, if you will, their spiritual throat. Verse 43, Jesus said to them, don't grumble. Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That is a very profound theological statement which we will not develop today. (laughs) And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness. Yes, they did, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Manna did not bring eternal life. Don't seek manna. That's the food of this world. So Jesus draws their attention to himself. He is God's revelation of himself. There will be no more. He's the high point, he's it, he's the sent one, he's the issue, not as an earthly king for today, which they wanted him to be, but the eternal king and savior forever, he's the Messiah. And if they want eternal life, he's it. I am the bread of life, he says. So they're gonna have to partake of him, they're gonna have to ingest him, they're gonna have to eat him, embrace him, feed on him but their minds are so glued to the earth. Verse 52, then the Jews began to argue with one another saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So he's not done with them, he's not giving up. Verse 53, truly, truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. 
He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So he who eats me, he also will live because of me. Wow. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. So Christ is eternal life, right? Nothing else. He must be the bread that our souls desire. We must hunger for him. And that really shouldn't have been that wild of a concept for them to be able to grasp. I mean, Psalm 42, how many times did they sing Psalm 42 in the, in the synagogue, right? As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? I mean, they, they know that metaphorical idea of drinking God, hungering and thirsting for God. They, they knew that from the Old Testament. Christ is eternal life. That's all he's saying. Nothing else. He must be the bread that we want. God in human flesh has to be hungered for. He is life, spiritual life. So verse 59, these things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So this is the conversation they've been having back home in the synagogue there. So a little bit of time has gone past, probably from about verse 41, they're, they get back to the shore, they're going in, they, they're having synagogue services, they've been grumbling the whole time, this is sort of a fresh conversation. So everything he said before verse 41, they'd been pondering and debating about all the way home, and then they get home and they're having this conversation. Verse 60, therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement, this whole eating of his flesh and stuff. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So I'm not telling you to dine on me physically. We're metaphorical speaking here, you know? This is the way it's, it should be really easy to understand. They were so earthly minded, it's ridiculous. So he's not talking about food and drink, literally. Physical things profit nothing towards eternal life. These are metaphors for taking him as one savior, embracing him, consuming him, hungering for him. And they just can't see that. God has visited them in Christ, their Messiah, their Lord, and he must be the object of their hunger, their devotion. Well, it, it concludes just tragically here. Verse 64, he says, there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. I mean, Judas is standing there this whole time too. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. If you're gonna make that kind of claim about yourself, we're not there. Many people said that, that had tried, gone out to see him. It's very sad. They wanted a king who could make free bread. They wanted the benefits of an earthly meal ticket, but Jesus is the object of their faith. Could they embrace him in faith? Could they come to him as the bread of life, as the source of eternal life? Could they love him? 
Could they follow him wherever that led? No. That's why Jesus emphasizes here so much the necessity of the Father granting and drawing anyone that's gonna end up being saved. Because men don't seek God. We are earthly minded without God doing this work. So we can see here that men don't really want what God, what God offers. They want what they think they can get out of him. That's really the essence of religion. What can we get out of the deity or the powers that be or whatever? That's what religion is. The truth is, God is the creator of all things. You owe him everything. You owe, if, and you're wicked and he's good. And even if he didn't save you, you owe him absolute allegiance and obedience and, and worship because of who he is. Even if he damns you, you owe him that. But he saves, he offers to save. That's why Christ came to save people and bring them eternal life and raise them up on the last day. But men don't want that. They might even want to live forever, but not for God, but just because they don't want to die. So I hope you're a person God has done a work in your heart and that you follow for God not just for the things you're gonna get out of it. And maybe you're just starting to awaken to that right now and he's doing the work right now. If so, come talk to me. I'd love to talk to you about it. Or you could talk to my pretty wife. She's easier to talk to. Or a lot of other people here. (laughs) You could talk to them. Are you saying that about her? Amen. If you come to Christ, he will enlighten you and teach you and grant you eternal life for the glory of God. But as we see in his own words, we have to embrace him by faith. Faith is the thing you have to bring to the table. Put your soul, put your life, put your future in his hands. God is eternal. He made you and me for eternity. And it's ours if we embrace the Savior, and dine on Him. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for your goodness, your faithfulness, your compassion, which we see so completely in Jesus. I would have walked out on this conversation long before he did, but he kept at it. He wanted them to know, to open their eyes, to open our eyes, our hearts, to who you really are, the Savior of the world, for all who come. Thank you for that. We give you praise and glory in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.